Every year, the Oxford Dictionary selects a word of the year. It doesn't necessarily have to be a new term, but it's a word or an expression that captures the mood or the preoccupations of the previous 12 months. So prior winners have included the word unprecedented to mark the year of the pandemic. Another was vax, short for vaccine. Last year's word of the year was goblin mode. I have no idea. I don't know what that means. You're going to have to tell me. But a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as the word of the year. Referring to a situation in which objective facts are no longer as convincing and they have less and less influence shaping public opinion. What matters more is what people feel is personally meaningful to them so people can choose their own truth. We live in a post-truth world and we see people using words on both the right and the left in ways that are disconnected from reality. Now, George Orwell anticipated this kind of a problem in his dystopian novel, 1984. In 1984, the government and the media introduced what is called new speak in contrast to old speak. And there's a character who works for the quote-unquote ministry of truth who meets with the protagonist, Winston Smith, and describes what he does. He explains that his job is not to invent new words, but rather to destroy them. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them, every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. Now, words that can be used to express what are called unorthodox ideas in the eyes of Big Brother are completely stripped from the language so that not only freedom of expression but freedom of thought becomes impossible. So this character goes on to explain, don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? So the purpose is to control people's words because if you can control people's words, you can control their lives. So the words no longer mean what they used to in George Orwell's wor world. And a perfect example of this would be the names given to the various government entities. Orwell explains that the Ministry of Peace is concerned with war. The Ministry of Love is concerned with torture. And the Ministry of Truth is concerned with lies. Now, increasingly, it seems that the world that Orwell imagined only in his worst nightmare bears striking resemblance to the post-truth world that we have now inherited 40 years later than what Orwell expected. But the question is, what are we supposed to do about it? Now, we're in the midst of a series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been suggesting that this is Jesus' vision of the good life, the flourishing life. This sermon lays out God's whole new way of being human. And in the passage that is before us today, Jesus speaks to the way in which we use our words. Now, at first glance, it might seem as if he's narrowly focused on oath-taking or oath-making. But no, he has a far larger concern. His larger concern is with truthfulness 
in all of its forms. And that has massive implications, not only for our wider world, but also for our personal lives. So as we jump into this passage today, I'd like us to consider the problem without, the problem within, and the answer to both. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find our passage printed on page 810 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that the same spirit that once inspired these words would illuminate them now for us so that Jesus' word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with him. And it's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin by getting our bearings. I want you to notice something interesting. Earlier, when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about anger, he begins with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And when he talks about sexuality, he begins with the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so you would expect that when Jesus talks about truthfulness, that he would begin with the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. But that's not where he starts out. He starts in an entirely different place. And this may be the least talked about part of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus isn't quoting anything here that you'll find in the scriptures. Instead, he's summarizing the kinds of things that people said in his day. Now, we might read these words and think to ourselves, well, I don't swear by heaven. I don't swear by earth. I don't swear by Jerusalem. And I don't swear by my own head, so I'm good to go. I've got this teaching covered. And sometimes people might read this in an overly legalistic way and assume that Jesus is saying that we should never make any kinds of oaths at all, and so they refuse to serve in the military or to testify in court, or they refuse to make any kind of public promise. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I'll come back to that in a minute. What is Jesus talking about? Well, think about it. Why do people say things like this? I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by all that's holy. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or why do kids say things like this? I promise you I'm telling the truth. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Why do kids say that? Well, because if you don't believe that I'm telling the truth, then I'm going to end up dead, lying in a coffin with a needle sticking in my eye, and it's going to be all your fault. See, why is it that we swear? Well, that's easy. People swear because people lie. 
If there were no such thing as lying, there would be no such thing as oath-taking. But Jesus does away with all these silly oaths because of his concern for truthfulness. So the first thing I want to do is consider the problem out there when it comes to truthfulness in our post-truth world. Now, over this past weekend, we gathered leaders from all over the country for a Resound Project leadership gathering. Resound Project is a new initiative which we recently launched, and the purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world. Now, if you've been paying any attention at all, you should know the church is in trouble. The church is facing massive difficulties, and therefore this moment requires a specific response. It's not that we simply need larger churches or more churches, although that would certainly help. What we need are stronger churches that become more resilient under pressure. And so we held a, a gathering for leaders around the country to address these topics. And we were joined by two friends, James Davison Hunter, who's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and N.T. Wright, a former retired bishop in the Church of, English, uh, Church of England and a biblical scholar at Oxford. And the reason why we invited them to come is because when we consider the current state of the world, we think that James is right about the severity of the challenges that we're facing in our cultural moment. And when it comes to the future of the church, we think that Tom is right about what we need to do about it. The church is called to be an advanced working model of the new creation. In other words, we're supposed to anticipate what God is going to do when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth in our actions now. And as an advanced working model of the new creation, we're meant to provide the world around us with a glimpse. And it might only be a glimpse, but it's a real picture of what the world will be like when Jesus makes all things new. And so I'd like to share with you this morning something that I learned from James. James wrote the introduction to a book by a man named Philip Reef, entitled Sacred Order, Social Order. Philip Reef, like James himself, was a sociologist in the mid-20th century. He was a keen student of culture. And he defined culture as world creation. That's what culture is. Culture simply takes a, a, a vision of the sacred order and translates it, transforms it into a social world. Because the whole point is that we human beings can never really understand ourselves or our actions or anything else except in relationship to the sacred order. So the purpose of culture is to translate that vision of the sacred into our social world. Now, I recognize that might sound a little bit abstract, but bear with me for a minute because this will blow your mind, but it also might just help you make sense of what's happening in our world today. You see, Philip Reef takes a sweeping view of all of human civilization and he breaks it down into three worlds. The first world you could call pagan, but he doesn't mean that in a derogatory sense. He's talking about everything from the complex world of ancient Greece to mystical Aboriginal Australia. And in the pagan world, the conception of God or the gods is based on a mythical understanding of nature. And the dominant cultural motif in the pagan world is fate. The second world, 
is based on the great monotheistic face, but not exclusively. And within the second world, the conception of God is based on the self-revealed creator. And we understand how we're supposed to live as human beings based on the God's revelation. And so if the dominant cultural motif in the pagan world is fate, the dominant motif in the monotheistic world, the second world, is faith. But then there's the third world. And that is the world that we are living in right now. And Reef would say that there has never been a world like this one before. This is something entirely new. Because the third world is a culture that does not believe that there is a sacred order. There is no God. There's no truth with a capital T. No shared understanding of right and wrong. No horizon beyond the self. And this is truly unprecedented. There, there's never been a culture in the whole history of the world that's lasted, that, 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 that tried to exist on the basis that there is no sacred order at all. So this third world has a different motif. If the first motif is fate and the second is faith, you could say that the motif of the third world is fight. And what he means by that is that we're living in a time of massive upheaval because a third world culture doesn't have anything to live for other than the destruction of the second world that came before it. And so this kind of society is marked by struggle. But the battle doesn't take place out there in a field. No, the field of battle is through symbols. And the weapon of choice is what Reef would call a death work. That's a term that he coined. And a death work is simply any work or any action that poses an all-out assault on that second world that came before it. So let me give you an example of this. Now, this is a somewhat graphic example, but I think it gets the point across. In 1987, there was an Italian artist named Andres Serrano who took a crucifix, a plastic crucifix, and he immersed it in a clear jar filled with his own urine and called it art. He took a photograph of it and put it up in a gallery. But you see, this is the very definition of a death work, an all-out assault posed against that second world that had come before it. And it's a death work because it takes that which is holy and makes it profane. Now, this is unlike anything that we human beings have seen in the course of our whole civilization. There's never been a culture that wasn't rooted in the sacred order. And Philip Reef wasn't a Christian, but you know what? Even he said, I don't think this movie is going to end well. Because he calls third world cultures anti-cultures. And that brings me back to the power of words. You see, words form the most basic building blocks of any society. Language makes culture possible. I mean, imagine, without language, without the ability to communicate, you've got nothing. And so if your goal is to destroy a second world culture, well, then words become a battleground. Words are weaponized, and this is what leads to what we now call politically correct speech. You see how words have now become the battleground? 
Now, let me give you one concrete example of this, piggybacking off of what I said last week about what Jesus had to say about intimate human relationships. Take the term, the word marriage. Now, in the past, there was considerable overlap between how the state and the church would define that term, but that overlap no longer exists. And what's the upshot of that? Well, the upshot is that every Christian marriage is a legally recognized union, but not every legally recognized union by the state is a Christian marriage as defined historically. You see, how have Christians everywhere, down through the centuries, over the last 2,000 years, from every branch of Christianity, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, how have they defined that term marriage? Well, everyone has said, without exception, up until the last few years, everyone has said marriage is a permanent and exclusive public covenant between one man and one woman. And what is the purpose of that covenant? Well, the purpose is not only to provide companionship, but also to provide for procreation, to create families in which children can be raised so that we might perpetuate the human race. And the purpose of that covenant is ultimately meant to serve as a sign of the union between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage is a sign of Jesus' radical and unconditional love for us. And the coming together of two equal but opposite bodies is meant to be a symbol of the coming together of heaven and earth, God's space and our space. That's what all Christians everywhere have always believed until the last couple of years, which is just a blip on the screen when you consider the history of Christianity, because now marriage has been redefined as a legally recognized union between any two people. But what that means is that, in that case, the only thing that distinguishes this marriage relationship is that it's especially intense. Your spouse is your go-to emotional person or your number one person, and sexual intimacy might be reserved to this relationship, although not necessarily, and it might enhance the bond between you. But the relationship is only expected to last as long as the feelings do. See, this redefined definition of marriage implies that the relationship will last only as long as one person continues to say to another, and vice versa, I love you, but it's over as soon as one person says, I don't love you anymore. And it doesn't adequately distinguish the difference between marriage and mere companionship, nor explain why marriage should be limited to just two people. Why not three or four? Now, that's widely accepted right? This, this redefinition of marriage is widely accepted, but I want you to understand what a fundamental change it is in our understanding of that very term. It destroys what Jesus meant when he used the word marriage. So this is a form of new speak. Now, you may agree or disagree with what I'm saying here, but I'm not trying to get you riled up. What I'm trying to do is to get you to just sort of open your eyes a little bit to to see what's going on here because we live in this time of cultural rupture. But that doesn't mean I'm calling you to be culture warriors because I'm not. I'm not telling you to go fight fire with fire because that would not be the Jesus way. And if you were to do that, you would end up committing death works of your own because the, 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 the fundamental truth is that The problem isn't just out there in the world somewhere. The problem when it comes to truthfulness lies right within 
our own human hearts. Remember, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, it'd be so easy, wouldn't it, if we could just separate the good people from the bad people, but the dividing line between good and evil doesn't fall out there in the world. No, the dividing line between good and evil passes right through every human heart. So the problem with truthfulness is not just out there in our post-truth world. No, it lies right here within our very selves. And so what are we supposed to do about that? Well, this is the issue that Jesus is driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying is that there can't be different levels of truthfulness in the life of a Christian. There can't be different levels of truthfulness when it comes to the followers of Jesus. So Jesus quotes the religious leaders of his day, and in part they were right, because there are several places in the Old Testament that say if you make a vow, you got to keep it. If you make a vow, you got to keep it, especially if you call God as your witness. You know, may God be my witness that I do such and such. So they were right about that, but the religious leaders of Jesus' day twisted the teaching by focusing on the formula that people would use to make a vow rather than the principle of keeping one's word. So let me explain what I mean by that. Many devout people in the first century would avoid using the word God, and so they came up with substitutes. But not only did they come up with substitute expressions in order to make a vow, they added this idea that some formulas were more binding than others. So Jesus gives us examples of this in Matthew 23. Some people would say, well, if you swear by the temple, you don't actually have to keep your promise. You can break your vow without being penalized. But if you make your vow to the gold of the temple, well, then too bad, you got to keep that promise. Or if you make your vow according to the altar, I swear by the altar, well, you can break that promise without being penalized. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, you're on the hook you got to do what you promised. But Jesus says, no, there cannot be levels of truthfulness with a Christian. And so he does away with all that sophistry. He says, if you're going to do that, then don't swear at all. And that's why he says, don't swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. And why is that? Because whether you back up your promise using the name of God or not, you can never escape God's presence. No matter what formula you use, no matter what you swear by, you can never stand outside of God's presence. And what does that mean? It means that everything you say within the sight of God is as binding as if you said it under oath. So we must speak the truth, Jesus says. We must be people of truthfulness. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So stop and ask yourself, why do we lie? Why do we exaggerate? Why do we tell half-truths? Why do we twist the truth? I'll tell you a little bit about me when I was a kid. I had a little bit of a sweet tooth. And there was a running joke in our family. In fact, we still joke about this in our family, that Whenever we were having dessert, and if my parents asked me, how many cookies did you have? It didn't matter how many I had. I always said, I only had two. It didn't matter if I had four, seven, 16. I always only had two. And even today, 
If I have dessert with my parents and there's cookies on the table, my dad will ask me, or my mom will ask me, how many cookies did you have, Jason? I only had two. And I wasn't a very good liar because you could see that half the box of cookies was gone. But why do we lie? Well, sometimes we lie because we're afraid of being caught or we're afraid of the consequences or we're, we're afraid of the repercussions or sometimes we lie because we're ashamed. We're ashamed of who we are or what we've done or maybe we lie because we want people to like us. We're afraid that if we speak too much of the truth, they won't like us anymore or we lie because we don't want to stick out. We don't want to get involved or because in that moment, there's something more important to us than the truth. In that moment, there's something we want more than the truth. But Jesus is saying, truth is sacred. Truth is sacred. And therefore, we as his followers have to be passionately committed to the truth. So we should never deliberately exaggerate or shade the truth by spitting our words. And we should never use our words to pressure or to deceive, to manipulate or to control. And we should never create false impressions. And we should always correct false statements. But there's more to it than that. Jesus isn't just telling us, don't lie, don't be a liar. Everybody knows that. No, there's, there's more going on here. See, he's telling us that we need to acknowledge the challenge of truthfulness in a post-truth world. And if that's the case, we, we, we can't play the world's games. We can't use words in ways that distort reality. Instead, we have to use words that reflect the, the good reality of God's creation and the good reality of his promised new creation. And that is precisely what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he calls us to speak the truth in love. And N.T. Wright was talking about this over this past weekend. Sometimes when we read those lines, speak the truth in love, we assume that just means, well, make sure that you don't lie and you always tell the truth, but do it with gentleness. But there's far more going on there when you understand the context. See, in the context, Paul is saying that God gave his church leaders. And the reason why he gave the church leaders is so that they might equip all of God's people to carry out the ministry that has been entrusted to us. But the danger is, from the time of Paul up to the present day, is that we might be deceived by people telling half-truths or distorted truths that don't reflect the reality of God's good world or his promised new creation. And so what does Paul say in context? He says the goal is that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up into him who is the head. We're called to grow up into maturity, into Christ. So we have to use our words in ways that do not distort reality, but reinforce reality. And that anticipate the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised when Jesus brings his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. But the sad truth is that we don't do that. And the sad truth is that we don't do that. So the, the problem isn't just out there in the world. No, the problem with truthfulness lies right here within our own hearts. So how are we supposed to respond to this? 
Well, in an odd sort of way, this might be strangely encouraging, but have you ever noticed that the Bible is full of liars? Stop and think about it. The Bible is filled with liars. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, Aaron, David, Ananias, Sapphira, they all lied. The Bible is a book full of liars. And you know what? The worst lie took place on the night before Jesus' death. Jesus warns his disciples that they are all going to fall away. But Peter, in his bravado, says, "Uh uh-uh, not me. I'm not like the rest of those losers. Even if they let you down, I never will. I will die for you before I ever disown you. And then we watch as Peter dares to follow Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest after he's been arrested. And while he's standing there, a young servant woman approaches him and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And according to Matthew chapter 27, Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. But then he distances himself. He, he went out to the entrance of the courtyard. But now another servant woman saw him, and so she says to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, but this time he doesn't merely deny it. Matthew tells us he denied it with an oath. I swear by heaven, I swear by earth, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by my head, I don't know the man. But then after a little while, a few of the other bystanders came up and they said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He had a northern accent. And they say, your, your Galilean accent gives you away. We know that you're one of them. And this time, get this, in verse 74, he doesn't just deny it and he doesn't just make an oath. He invokes a curse on himself and swears, I don't know the man. He doesn't merely say, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by everything that's holy. I swear on a stack of Bibles. He says, may I be cursed May God cut me off forever from his covenant love. May I be like a man cursed and hung on a tree, cross my heart and hope to die. I don't know the man. And then the cock crows. And Matthew says he went out and whipped, wept bitterly, but I don't think that's the half of it. Do you see this? He, he doesn't just deny Jesus. He, he swears he didn't know him. He brings down a curse upon himself. So what is God supposed to do with a liar and an oath-breaker like Peter? And what is he supposed to do with people like us? Well, Jesus told Peter in advance, Satan demanded that he might have you so that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants to, to crush you like powder. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. But I have prayed for you. It's not gonna happen. 
It's not going to happen if you've got Jesus praying for you. I have prayed for you so that when you turn, when you're healed, when you're restored, strengthen others. And here's the best part. This is one of my favorite little details in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. On the third day after the crucifixion, the resurrected Jesus appears to a small group of women. They are the witnesses of the first day of the new creation. And what does he tell this group of women? He says, go and tell the disciples. Well, nope, that's not all. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Specifically Peter. He singles out Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell that big fat liar that my grace is sufficient for you. (laughs) That my cross is enough for you. And tell them to go ahead and meet me in Galilee just as I promised. Because I keep my promises. I'm true to my word. And then Jesus beautifully reinstates Peter so that he might become what? The rock upon which he builds his church. He reinstates Peter so that he might become one of the leaders that equips all of God's people for ministry by doing what? By speaking the truth in love. By becoming someone who is passionate for the truth who refuses to distort reality, but who seeks to bring people in line with God's good creation and his promised restoration of all things. And so despite everything that happened, despite all that he had done, Peter is not cursed, he's blessed. But why? How? And it's true for us too. Despite all of our lies, despite all of our betrayals, Jesus lifts the curses from us by bearing them for us. He receives the curse so that we might receive the blessing. You know, I said earlier that a death work takes that which is holy and makes it profane, like taking a crucifix and dumping it in urine. But you know what the ultimate death work is? The ultimate death work was the crucifixion. What could be more profane than taking the holy son of God and hoisting him up on a cross? And yet Jesus transforms the death work of crucifixion into a life work. Jesus takes the cross, he takes that which is profane and he makes it holy because he transforms this vehicle of death in his own life into a vehicle of life for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, knew something about politically incorrect speech. He knew something about new speak. He knew the ways in which people control words in order to control their lives. And he understood the importance of truthfulness rather than distorting reality. And the question is, how do we become people of the truth rather than people of the lie? Well, years before he was ever arrested by the Nazis, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, and in it he included a book chapter entitled truthfulness and this is what he writes complete truthfulness is only possible where sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus 
What matters first and last is that a man's whole being should be exposed, his whole evil laid bare in the sight of God. But sinful men do not like this sort of truthfulness, and they resist it with all their might. And that is why they persecute it and crucify it. It's only because we follow Jesus that we can be genuinely truthful. For then he reveals to us our sin upon the cross. The cross is God's truth about us. And it is the only power which can make us truthful. Do you hear this, friends? The problem without, the problem within, can only be answered by the cross. The cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it is the only power that can make us truthful. Let me pray. Father, we acknowledge that we live in a post-truth world where words often are no longer connected to reality or no longer mean what they used to. But Father, we pray that through the light of the cross, we might discover our true identity in all of our sin and in all of your grace. And we, find, we pray that we might find through your cross the power to become truthful, which is necessary not only to be your people so that we might grow up into maturity as your followers, but also so that we might point the world around us to the truth of the new heavens and the new earth that you will bring to bear when you finish what you started and when Jesus makes all things new. So make us people of the truth by your power and through your grace, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.